please remain standing for the scripture reading. Uh, go ahead and open in your Bibles, whether paper or digitally, uh, to Ecclesiastes 10, verses 12 through 20. <clears throat> 12 through the end of the chapter. And it says this. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> uh, you please be seated. Well, as I said, my name is Tyler. I'm the director of ministries here, and welcome to you all. Also, welcome to those who are online. Um, and let us uh, go to the, word, the Lord in prayer as we prepare to hear his word. Father, would you please now open our eyes, like the two on the road to Emmaus, that we may see the Lord Jesus Christ in all of the scriptures as you wrote him to be. In his name we pray, amen. Well, as way of context for our sermon, um, we have done this Ecclesiastes series and we are nearing the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, whose chief purpose is to make us all depressed. No, but not far off. Um, Solomon has been trying to show us how the reality of death makes every aspect of life hevel. It's smoke, it's vanity, it's meaningless, vapor. He's done this not merely to make us sad and dejected, but to wake us up for, to the need for a new and better reality than the things of this world can offer. He's gone through everything, money, pleasure, even wisdom, and concluded that it is all hevel, building his case brick by brick as he goes through. And then we come to our very strange passage today. What, Sol what is Solomon doing in this section? It's a real head-scratcher for every commentator out there. Solomon, out of nowhere, begins just breaking into Proverbs mode. All of a sudden, he starts talking about wisdom and foolishness, corrupted leaders, running a household well, and not speaking badly about the king. It's very, very odd indeed. How does this relate to the rest of the book even? Has Solomon, having convinced us that everything is vanity, is now deciding to move on and give us a few practical life tips at the end of the book? It almost feels like he had some leftover proverbs that he needed to put somewhere, and hey, I'll squeeze them into Ecclesiastes. By the way, and as Robin said, this is why Martin Luther felt like Ecclesiastes was very sporadic, very odd, very hard to interpret. Personally, I am convinced that there's a lot more going on here in our passage today than it seems on the surface. 
It's a lot more than some last-minute proverbs. And actually, this passage is pointing to Jesus, as odd as that may sound. We will be looking at something that I call divine intertextuality. And that's just a really fancy way of saying that there are two passages in the Bible that are meant to be read together, read in tandem, but neither of the authors know that that is what they're doing. It's only intended to be so in the mind of God, divine intertextuality. I think that's what's going on in our passage today. And reading the two passages together is actually greater than the sum of their parts. I'll show you what I mean as we go through, but from our text today, we should see that the mind of God works in such a way that his word is amazingly and intentionally interconnected and all pointing to Jesus and his gospel. And that brings us to our first point. First point of two. The fool, fools fail in their speech and who they follow. So point one, fails fool in, excuse me, fools fail, I'm a fool, I fail in my speech. Let me say it again. First point, fools fail in their speech and who they follow. So let us remember that fool, as we said before, is a moral category. This is not someone of low intelligence. It's actually, uh, someone can be a smart fool. Satan is a fool, but he's very crafty. No, this is a person who, above all things, rejects the fear of Yahweh. The fear of Yahweh, as you'll remember, is the beginning of wisdom. So these are people who are rejecting Yahweh in their choices. But with that said, Solomon first gives us three characteristics of the fool's speech in verses 12 through 14. In verse 12, Solomon says that the fool's talk consumes him. It consumes him. In verse 13, Solomon says that the fool's speech starts off as foolishness, and then it just takes a downhill slide into madness. And then in verse 14, Solomon says that the fool's speech is about multiplying words about the future, something he knows nothing about. But then oddly, instead of giving us a fourth characteristic of the fool's speech, Solomon gives us one characteristic of the fool's toil in verse 15. He says this, his toil wearies him, and then he adds this odd phrase, for he does not know the way to the city. More on this in a moment. Then Solomon um, all of a sudden starts talking about corrupted leaders out of nowhere. He's talking about the fool's speech, then his work, and now corrupted leaders. That's in verses 16 through 20. Um, let me reread this section for you. Um, it, it, Woe to you, land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. So, very odd. <laughs> very odd. So, woe to you, land, when your rulers are immature, selfish, self-indulgent, and lazy. That's true. And then in verse four, uh, 18, we get this weird section about the upkeep of a house out of nowhere. And then in verse 19, we get a section about bread and wine and money and how they, those make people happy. And then finally, in verse 20, we get this really odd saying about how you shouldn't curse the king because a bird is going to tell on you. 
you're like, what is going on? So again, very uh, random pieces of advice, especially for a book that isn't trying to give you straightforward life advice. Um, and perhaps this is just good advice randomly compiled in a book where it doesn't really belong, but it begs the question, what's really going on here? Did Solomon forget what book he's writing? First, we're talking about the fool's speech, then the fool's work, then corrupted leadership, then house upkeep, then how bread is good, and then how a bird's going to tell on you if you say bad things about the king. Um, it all seems a little random. And I think we can all agree with Martin Luther that, and every other Ecclesiastes commentator that this seems really odd, right? And this could just be a sermon. I could, have, I could write this sermon as being simply about watching what we say and watching who we follow. And those are great pieces of advice. Um, we shouldn't be foolish in our speech. We should beware of corrupted leaders. And we should take good care of our homes. And that's all well and good. But if you understand the Bible, then you know that its goal isn't really about sin management. It's not about behavior modification. That's how the Pharisees understood the story of the Bible. If I'm righteous enough, God's going to bless me. The Bible is not a book that is trying to scold you into being more wise and to turn away from foolishness. It's a story primarily about what? The gospel of Jesus Christ for the salvation of sinners. And I'm convinced, believe it or not, that that is what is going on here. And I think that this strange passage in Ecclesiastes is plugged in an interesting way into the overall gospel story of the Bible. So how on earth do we get there from here? And I want, that's what I'm going to use the rest of my time to try to show you. Um, and that brings us to my second point. We are all fools, but Jesus, our king, won't let us go. We are all fools, but Jesus, our king, won't let us go. So the first point, fools fail in their speech and who they follow. We are all fools, but Jesus, our king, won't let us go. Okay, so now I'm sure you're wondering how are we going to get there? Well, I think there are some very obvious clues in our passage that will show us this. So keep your spot in Ecclesiastes 10, and then turn, if you would, to Luke 24. That was our reading from before. Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. It's the famous passage known as the road to Emmaus. So while you're turning there, I'll just remind you that I preached from Ecclesiastes 9 about the poor wise man who saved the city but wasn't regarded. And I thought that that paralleled Luke 11. I made my case there. I'm not going to recap it. If you want to check that out, you can. It's on our YouTube page. It's called When Death Cured Hevel. I'll just say for now that I think there's another parallel passage from Luke going on now in Ecclesiastes 10. And I'm going to make my case and you see what you think. Um, and if I'm right, I believe it will shed a lot of light not only on what's going on in Ecclesiastes 10, but also what's going on in Luke 24. Okay, so here, uh, and I'm not going to reread that passage because it's long, but I'll allude to it along the way. Okay, so here are my six subpoints making my case if you're a note taker. Um, the first is this In Ecclesiastes 10 24, it mentions how the speech of the fool consumes him, leads to madness, and multiplies words about the future. And so, what is the road to Emmaus about? Well, we all know the story pretty well, or perhaps we think we do. It's about two of Jesus' disciples leaving Jerusalem on Resurrection Sunday after, um, the, after the resurrection, and they are feeling sad and dejected. And then Jesus meets them on the road going out of Jerusalem, 
as they're heading on their way. And we are told one of the names of them is Cleopas. But in John 19.25, we are told that there is a woman named Mary who is at the crucifixion who's said to be the wife of Clopas. Commentators seem to think that Cleopas and Clopas are the same person. And it's common in the New Testament to have slightly different spellings depending on which uh, translation, transliteration you are getting the name from, whether Greek or Aramaic or Hebrew. So it seems to be that this is Cleopas and his wife Mary who are going back to their home um, tra after traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover. And while they were in Jerusalem, they heard about Jesus being the Messiah. And Mary even watched him on the cross. But as it has now been three days since his death, they're convinced he's not the Messiah. And they're heading back home, and it has made them sad. And Jesus, who they don't recognize, tells them that all the Old Testament points to him. Then he goes with them to their house, and at dinner he breaks bread, and their eyes are open, and they realize it is Jesus who has been talking to them the whole time, and that he has indeed been resurrected. Then they promptly returned to Jerusalem to go to be with the disciples. Okay, so on the road, Cleopas talks to Jesus about the, how he hoped that he was the Messiah, but now they're convinced he's not. And after he finishes speaking, what does Jesus say to him in verse 25? Luke 24, 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. He calls them foolish ones. It's worth noting, actually, though, that Jesus uses a softer term in Greek for fool uh, to show his kindness and concern for them. So Cle Cleopas gives a foolish speech, and it has all the characteristics mentioned in Ecclesiastes 10. It has consumed him, it's led to madness, and he's multiplied words about what is to come, which he has no idea about. And Jesus has lovingly corrected, him, corrected them for being the fools that they are. So the first point is that there's the foolish speech that Jesus calls foolishness. That's the first point. The second point is that in Ecclesiastes 10, 15, you'll remember that it moves abruptly from three verses about the fool's speech to one verse about his toil, which seems very random. But with that, Solomon mentioned this. He said, the toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. That's a really odd thing to say. That's a really odd thing to say. But when you pair that with the foolish speech of the disciples on the road and how they are going away from Jerusalem, something seems to be going on. Add to this Ecclesiastes 10.3, which we did not cover, where Solomon writes this, Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. Here they are, two fools on the road, going in the wrong direction. But you might ask, how do we know that they're going in the wrong direction? Aren't they allowed to go to Emmaus for the Passover and then just return back home from the Passover? Well, short answer, no. No, they're not allowed to do that. They had been with Jesus. They had joined the disciples. They were at the crucifixion, and now they are leaving the group after hearing the account how Jesus was resurrected by the other disciples, and they've rejected it. They say, we don't believe it. And how do we know that? Well, there's some clues in the text. <clears throat> as soon as Jesus is revealed... These two immediately leave their house and go back to Jerusalem. And in, at the end of uh, Luke 24, Jesus tells the disciples to stay in Jerusalem until they are given power from on high, meaning the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, which happens in Acts 2. So Jesus says, stay in Jerusalem. And add to that that the Hebrew 
for the phrase in Ecclesiastes 10, where it says, he does not know the way to the city, it literally says this, he does not know to go to the city. That's what the Hebrew says. He does not know to go to the city. That's what the fool is like. So for Solomon, the fool is foolish because he doesn't know he should go to the city. For Luke, these two foolish disciples don't know they should go to Jerusalem instead of leaving it. And then third, so that's, those are the first two points. Third, notice the talk about corrupted rulers in verses 16 through 18, which also seems very random in Luke. First, they're talking about the fool's speech, then work, then all of a sudden we veer into talking about corrupted rulers. But then notice on the road to Emmaus how, uh, who Cleopas says their rulers are. Did you notice that? Here's a hint. It's not Jesus. So he keeps, uh, Cleopas refers to Jesus in the past tense. So in verse 19, he was a man who was a prophet, past tense. In verse 21, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, also past tense. They clearly have moved on from Jesus. But then notice in verse 20 who they do say their rulers are, how our chief priests and rulers, he's back to following the corrupted rulers of Israel who killed Jesus instead our chief priests and rulers. That makes sense why these two random topics are just joined together in Ecclesiastes 10. Fourth, notice the reference in Ecclesiastes 16 through 19 to feasting and house and bread. Good leaders are not to eat in the morning, but into the, in, the, in the evening. Notice what time Luke says that they went to their house, for it was in the evening. And Jesus goes with them to their house to eat since they are a married couple which would make sense of the randomness of Ecclesiastes 10, 18. And notice what Jesus breaks in verse 19, bread. And as an interesting note, when you went to someone's house to eat, it was customary for the leader of the house to break the bread and bless it and give it to everyone. But notice who does it here. It's not Cleopas, it's Jesus. And so Ecclesiastes adds, happy are you when the king is the son of the nobility. Fifth, we have this weird verse in Ecclesiastes 10.20 about not cursing the king or a bird is going to tell on you. And what on earth is that about? That's so weird. Well, it makes sense when you see that the Hebrew for a winged creature is not the one typically from Genesis in the creation story. It's actually this odd phrase, Lord of the wings. Not Lord of the rings, Lord of the wings. And I think this is a clear reference to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is referenced throughout the Bible as a bird, not literally a bird, but like a bird. So in Genesis 1-2, it says that the Spirit of God fluttered over the face of the deep. It's the word for uh, flying in it for a bird. And then at Jesus' baptism, what does the Holy Spirit descend like? A dove. So what this would mean is that the Holy Spirit saw these two disciples leaving because they lost hope in Jesus, and he sends Jesus, the king, to go back and bring them back. Sixth and finally, notice that this whole passage is about how the Old Testament um, refers to Jesus. The entirety of the Old Testament points to him throughout. So Luke uh, 24, 27 says this, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. How fitting that there would be a parallel passage to the passage that says there are all these parallel passages going on. So yes, Jesus is found throughout the Old Testament, but perhaps the Bible is so interconnected that Jesus can be even found in Ecclesiastes 10 to 
12, 12 through 20. So to reca recap my, uh, my six points briefly, here, here they are. One, Jesus meets with the two disciples and Cleopas gives a foolish speech about why they don't think he's the Messiah. And when he's finished, Jesus calls them fools for lacking faith. Two, Ecclesiastes says that a, a characteristic of the fool is that he doesn't know to go to the city, which fits with them leaving Jerusalem and heading back home. And the first thing they do when their eyes are opened are what? They book it right back to Jerusalem. Three, Ecclesiastes also talks about corrupted rulers, which these two talk about as uh, who they're following now that they've given up hope in Jesus. Fourth, Ecclesiastes references the random details of feasting at the right time, taking care of your house and bread, all of which are occurring in Luke's passage. And the breaking of the bread is the thing that actually opens their eyes. Five, it is said that the Lord of the wings will carry your message to the king if you curse him. And it seems to be what has happened. Jesus has learned that they are, have turned away from him as their king, and now he's coming after them, but not to punish, but to reclaim. And six, the main point that Jesus is making in this whole section to the two on the road is that the whole Old Testament is about him. And it would be very fitting for there to be an Old Testament passage that's parallel to the road to Emmaus. So that's my case. And you have to think about if you uh, decide it has merit. And by the way, if you have further questions about this, I know this is a lot, come talk to me afterwards or email me. My email's on the back. I'm glad to talk about this further. I'm sure you have questions. Um, but I find it very convincing that these two parallel passages intended by God are intended by God to be read in tandem. But if that's true, the question remains, so what? <laughs> Why did we just do that? Why did we do that? Well, it might be true, but does it matter? And I think the answer is yes, because this changes the meaning of both of the passages. Does it not? Changes the meaning of both of the passages. Instead of Ecclesiastes 10 being, a, uh, being random, it shows that it has a lot of intentionality behind it, intertextuality about Jesus. And in doing so, it transforms the message about random morality to being about the gospel. It also changes the road to Emmaus account, does it not? We usually tend to read the road to Emmaus as about Jesus opening the eyes of some of his disciples on a trip. But in reality... It's about Jesus going to reclaim his wayward disciples. They are the lost sheep wandering away from the shepherd. It makes an interesting story into a gospel story about the never-dying, steadfast love of Jesus for his people. Yes, these two were leaving Jesus, but Jesus was not going to leave them. This is a perfect example of what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.13, where he writes, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Jesus goes after his lost sheep, even when they are wayward. That includes us. We are the fools on the road. We are the lost sheep. Not only before we are saved, but many times, time and time again, after we are saved. It's like the hymn, Come Thou Fount, where it says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That is my story too. That is your story too. We are the fools on the road. That's what an amazing Savior Jesus is. He never, ever, ever gives up on his people. He never lets his people go. He will always go after us 
when we are wayward and erring. That is why Jesus can say in John 10, 27 and 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Perhaps you've known this in your own life. Perhaps there have been seasons or perhaps you're in a season like this right now where you know that you aren't walking with God. You're walking perhaps away from him. Maybe you feel yourself going wayward. These seasons are incredibly painful. But when you feel the Lord graciously bringing you back to him, even and especially when you don't deserve it, that is some of the sweetest, most tender communion you can have with God. Those are the best moments when you really feel God is acting to save you, even when you aren't. Or maybe you're even kicking against him right now, but he won't let you go. I can't think of anything better than that. I don't know about you, but this is the kind of savior that I need. I need a savior who doesn't leave me when I'm faithless. I'm a sinner, and I need a savior who has a plan for that. And I think you do too. Do you know Jesus as a savior like this? Do you know that he graciously has you no matter what? Or maybe you don't know Jesus as Savior. I'm telling you, there is no love like this anywhere in the world. And isn't this the love that your heart longs for? It can only be found in Jesus. And he holds his arms graciously out to you now, offering for you to become his beloved. So what's stopping you? from taking him up on it. Thank God that even when we are fools on the road, Jesus comes after us to save us from our foolishness. When we go to heaven, it won't be because of our grit and determination, but because of the steadfast faithfulness of our loving Savior. There's one more interesting um, detail in the road uh, story, and actually I think it perhaps instead of being called the road to Emmaus, it might better be understood as the road from Jerusalem. But there's a a really interesting detail that my friend Tim Doggard insightfully pointed out to me, and I wanted to mention it because I think it even helps us better understand what's going on here. And that is this, the Greek for their eyes were opened and they recognized him in Luke 24, 31, is practically identical to Genesis 3, 7, after the fall. When it says of Adam and Eve, their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked. So why is that important? Well, in Genesis, a couple eats and has their eyes open towards their own sin, and it drives them away from God. And on the road to Emmaus, a couple is foolishly walking away from Jesus as Savior, and yet he goes after them, and upon giving them food, their eyes are open, and they see Jesus, and they are brought near to God. Jesus is the reversal of the fall. One couple's eyes were opened and they saw they were naked. Another couple's eyes were opened and they saw him. Which is true of you. So two passages informing each other to be greater than the sum of their parts. Gold is good, diamonds are good, but a wedding ring is greater than the sum of its parts. As we conclude here, I have two applications for us. First, beware of reading the Bible 
as a book about morality. It is first and foremost at its core a book about Jesus and his gospel. And if that's what you end up seeing it as, merely a book of morality like the Pharisees, you are in danger of missing the point entirely. And here's a good test for that. When you come across a passage like our passage today, Ecclesiastes 10, 12 through 20, does it make you want to rest in your righteousness or in Jesus' righteousness? Do you try to convince yourself when you hear things about the fool that, hey, I'm actually, I'm not a fool. Here are the ways I'm not a fool. Or does it make you realize, you know what, I, I am a fool and I need Jesus. Does it make you try to pull yourself up by your bootstraps or forsake any ability that you have to be right in God's eyes through your own effort? And one way you can know that when you come to passages like this is where your focus goes. Um, often the question becomes not so much, hey, am I a fool? You tend to go, and I tend to do this too, you go, oh, I think so-and-so is foolish in this way. I think this other person's foolish. Or I think they really struggle with foolishness. I better send them this sermon. Or are you able to say, you know what? I'm a fool. I reject God's ways. I choose my ways all the time. And that's how great a savior I have. He doesn't give, on, give up on me even then. He comes after me even when I'm wayward. His steadfast love endures forever. I can tell you that one is much, much healthier than the other. Another good test is if you're reading moral passage, passages, does it result in praise to Jesus lovingly through your failure, or does it result in thanking your God, God that you're not like so-and-so? Um, that will tell you what your view of the gospel is. So like Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and tax collector, the Pharisee stands there and is gladly saying, I thank you, God, that I'm not like the tax collector. But the tax collector, what does he do? He beats his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. One of them went away justified, and the other didn't. If you have the view of the tax collector, and only that view, then your besetting sins won't crush you. Your besetting sins won't crush you. If you don't think Jesus, your Savior, can save you through them, it's going to be a very bumpy ride. Because your hope is going to be that through your hard work, you're going to get over your besetting sins. But Paul had a thorn in his side, and what did that thorn teach him? It taught him that God's strength was made perfect in Paul's weakness. But if you think that Jesus only loves you if you have your sins under control, that's enough rope to hang yourself with. You will live a very sad, meager life full of anxiety, devoid of joy. No, you need to know in your bones that Jesus will save you in spite of and precisely because you cannot save yourself from your sins. And as we are spending this year at Westminster on gospel transformation, here's a great time for us to assess if we are really trusting in the gospel because that is how real change occurs. Godly change happens when we can be radically honest about ourselves because we are convinced of the radical acceptance of us by Jesus, our Savior. And then our final point of application, isn't the Bible amazing? <laughs> isn't the Bible amazing? I get so sad. I get so sad when I hear Christians selling it short. When it does something odd, it's not our job to try to smooth that over and ignore that and explain it away. We need to pay attention. 
Every single jot and tittle of the Bible is exactly as God intended it to be. So when we, it's doing something weird, that's when something intentional is going on in the mind of God. It doesn't mean we will know right away what that is, and it might take us years and a lot of labor to understand it, but that's what it is. So to that point, if I'm right in believing that Ecclesiastes 10 and Luke 24 are linked, then something truly remarkable is going on because it doesn't seem like either of the authors of these books, Solomon and Luke, even realized that they were intending to allude to one another. This is where, this was in God's mind alone and neither of the minds of the human authors. Solomon, of course, not even knowing about the road to Emmaus and Luke, the physician, it's very clear he's trying to write a straightforward account to this man named Theophilus and he's not trying to do literary gymnastics, but he's doing them nonetheless. That's amazing. And both of the writers are writing about a thousand years apart from one another. Where have you ever seen intertextuality like this? Where else but in the mind of God can you have something like this occur? Neither writer could do this. No earthly writer can do this. That's how remarkable the Bible is. And that's why Paul can say in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So are you giving the Bible the credit that it deserves? Does it have the place in your life and in your heart that it is due? By God's grace, may all of our eyes be open to his majesty and the majesty of this book about Jesus and his gospel. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, this was a lot to take in this morning. Um, this was a lot to understand, and perhaps for many of us, new information. And so I pray that you would give us patience, that you'd give us um, hearts that want to see and to believe, and may um, it all result in praise to Jesus, our gracious Savior. And we pray this all in his name. Amen.